Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The podcast is about to begin. Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 95 of the Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. I'm your host, Tino Romero Jr., a.k.a. the Graveyard Grumbler. Today's episode is a pretty trippy one. I never intended for this episode to be as trippy as this one is until, well, you know, after I started doing the research and I started reading more about it, I got hooked. I wasn't going to do it because it's a really long episode, so I actually cut some of it out. But I still think it's going to be an enjoyable one. It's, we're we're going to go to the United Kingdom for this one. We're, we're leaving America. We're heading back out over the seas. We're going across the pond. We're heading out to the United Kingdom. So today's episode, episode 95, is about Dennis Nielsen. And for those of you who don't know who that gentleman is, because I didn't know who it was until I started doing some research about it, he is a horrible, horrible person, and we're going to find out why. So who is Dennis Nielsen? Dennis Nielsen was born on November 23rd, 1945 in Fraserburg, Ab- Aberdeenshire, <laughs> the second of three children born to Elizabeth Duthie White and Olive Magnus Mokshim. Who had been adopted, who had adopted the surname Nielsen. Nielsen's father was a Norwegian soldier who had traveled to Scotland in 1940 as part of the Free Norwegian Forces following the German occupation of Norway. After a brief, after a brief courtship, he married Nielsen's mother in May 1942, and the newlyweds moved into her parents' house. So nothing too bad. The guy, the dad is a military man coming over from Norway over to Scotland. As part of the free Norwegian forces. So once the Norwegians were freed up and able to go wherever they wanted, they, he said, hey, you know what? Let me go to Scotland. Let me go find some love out there. Because he's looking for love in all the wrong places. That's about all I know from that song. The marriage between Nielsen's parents was difficult. Olaf Nielsen did not view married life with any seriousness, being preoccupied with his duties with the free Norwegian forces and making little attempt to spend much time with or find a new home for his wife. He said, fuck that. I'm married, but I'm not married. I'm going to continue with my military career, and you can't tell me nothing. Bottom line, that's it, and that's all. Do not try to... You you can't manage me. I'm part of the Norwegian forces. You heard me, son? After the birth of their third child, Nielsen's mother concluded she had rushed into marriage without thinking. The couple divorced in 1948. All three of the couple's children, Olaf Jr., Dennis, and Sylvia, had been conceived on their father's brief visits to their mother's household. Her parents, Andrew and Lily, her parents, Andrew and Lily White, who had never approved of their daughter's choice of husband, were supportive of their daughter following her divorce and considerate to of their children. Well, you know, what's crazy is that I didn't read anything about be, the children being abused, nor did I read that his wife or that his mother was abused. So from right out of the gate, we're, we're starting to see that there isn't a typical path with this gentleman as there was with previous screwed up individuals. And when I tell you this guy screwed up, this guy's really screwed up. But as far as I was reading in the research, again, I didn't really dive deep into it only for the fact that I didn't want to look up 97 different websites to try to get the information. I had plenty of of webs of information off of one or two websites. So, and both of those websites didn't really give me a deep behind the scenes opening. If he was abused or his mother was abused. From what I know is that his dad was never home because he was always out on tour with the military. He just wasn't around. 
And when he did come home, he'd clap some cheeks with his wife, get knock her up, and then he'd head right back out. Like, hey, you deal with it, not me. And so when they divorced, the the Nielsen's grandparents were like, yo, I'm glad that you finally got rid of them. So now let's go ahead and start getting you and the kids stable and taken care of. Nielsen was a quiet... Nielsen was a quiet yet adventurous child. His earliest childhood memories were of family picnics in the Scottish countryside with his mother and siblings of his grandparents' poised lifestyle, which he later described as cold and door, and of being taken on long countryside walks. Hold on, whoa. His earliest childhood memories were of family picnics in the Scottish countryside with his mother and siblings, of his grandparents' poised lifestyle, which he later described as cold and door, Dior and of being taken on long countryside walks carried on the soul, on the shoulders of his maternal grandfather to whom he was particularly close. Well, that's good. I mean, he was forming some sort of male or some bond with a male role model. It doesn't sound like his grandfather was a complete asshole, but we're not into the we're not deeply into that just yet. We just know that you know his dad his grandfather stepped up said, "Man, this, these kids need these kids need a male role model and I got you. Don't trip." By 1951, Nielsen's grandfather's health was in decline, but he continued to work. On October 31st, 1951, while fishing in the North Sea, he died of a heart attack at the age of 62. His body was brought ashore and returned to the White family home prior to burial. That is going to be a huge blow for Dennis. Anytime you get, you grow a bond with anybody, it doesn't matter if it's a male role model or not, and that person passes away, it's going to leave a deep scar and void inside of your body. That's shitty. In what Nielsen later described as his most vivid childhood recollection, his mother, weeping, asked him whether he wanted to see his grandfather. When he replied that he did, he was taken into the room where his grandfather lay in an open coffin. As Nielsen As Nielsen gazed upon the body, his mother told him his grandfather was sleeping, adding that he had gone to a better place. So let me get let, let me let me just throw this out there. I'm glad that his mother took him to go see his the, the body of his dead grandfather. You know, he asked him, he said, "Yeah, I want to see it." But what I don't agree with is that his mother lied to him. You know, kids are able to to handle a lot more truth than what a lot of people think. So instead of lying to the kids, be honest with them, let them know, "Man, he died. He's done. That's it. He's he's DED. He ceases to be alive." Don't lie to the kids because that's a lot. It takes them longer and it's a more difficult, uh, what is it, healing time and, and closure when you lie to them and then they find out that, you know, my, my grandpa wasn't sleeping. He was actually dead. Why didn't you just tell me that? That way I can start coping and, and, and getting closure and putting this shit behind me. I never understood why that. I mean, me personally, in my own personal experience, my, I was lied to that when my dad was died, when, when my dad died. My aunt lied to me about it, and it, was, it devastated me. That hurt me more than my dad dying. I know that's kind of weird to say, but if my, I mean, I, in my opinion, I feel that if I had been told the truth, then it, I, I would have been. It would have been a lot easier for me to comprehend and not been hung up on on just being lied to. In the years following the death of his grandfather, Nielsen became more quiet and withdrawn often standing alone at the harbor watching the herring boats. At home, he seldom participated in family activities and retreated from any attempts by adult family members to demonstrate any infection towards him. See, that's already rough. That he, He's starting to withdraw. He, he doesn't have an ally. Nothing, nothing is there to, 
to help him get any closure and and fill the void that he has after losing his grandpa. That's that, that's that's rough. That's rough. Nielsen grew to resent what he saw as the unfair amount of attention his mother, grandmother, and later stepfather displayed toward his older brother and younger sister. Nielsen envied Olaf Jr.'s popularity. He often talked to or played games with his younger sister, Sylvia, to whom he was closer than any other family member. At the onset of puberty, Nielsen discovered he was gay, which initially confused and shamed him. He kept his sexuality hidden from his family and his, and his few friends because many of the boys to whom he was attracted had facial features similar to those of his younger sister. Sylvia, on one occasion, he sexually fondled her, believing that his attraction towards boys might be a manifestation of the care he felt for her. That's kind of screwed up. It really is. But unfortunately, with the curiosity and the... The accessibility they had with each other, he had a he he fondled her. I, I don't agree. I, I don't agree, and it's and it's shitty that that happened to Sylvia. And I hope she had closure, and nothing more more went, nothing further went from that. I mean, it shouldn't have happened at all, not at all. But fuck, man, where it, it's just starting to get bad. Nielsen made no efforts to seek sexual contact with any of the peers to whom he was sexually attracted, although he later said he had been fondled by an older youth and did not find the experience unpleasant. On one occasion, he also caressed and fondled the body of his older brother as he slept. So Dennis Nielsen was sexually molested. I, well, I mean, he was, a, let me see, he was fondled by, by an older kid. So yeah, he was molested as by, by an older but by an older kid, I'm pretty sure he didn't report it. And then the crazy thing is to find out that, or that Dennis says, man, being fondled by an older kid, it wasn't an, un an unpleasant experience. So right there, he's already battling shit inside of his head where he just can't clear things up and knowing what's right from wrong and what should be done and what shouldn't be done. As a result of this, Olaf Jr. began to suspect his brother was gay and regularly belittled him in public, referring to Dennis as Hin, a Scottish dialect for girl. Nielsen initially believed that his fondling of his sister may have been evidence that he was bisexual. Nielsen's scholastic record was above average. He displayed a flair for history and art, but, but shunned sports. He finished his schooling in 1961 and briefly worked in a canning factory as he considered which career path he should choose. After three weeks at the factory, Nielsen informed his mother that he intended to join the army where he intended to train as a chef. Nielsen passed the entrance examinations and received official notification he was to enlist for nine years service in September 1961. Commencing his training with the Army Catering Corps at the St. Omar Barracks at St. Omar Barracks in Aldershot, Hampshire. Well, let's, you know, let's go to the military. That always solves everything. While stationed at Aldershot, Nielsen's latent feelings, latent feelings began to stir, but he kept his sexual orientation well hidden from his colleagues. Nielsen never showered in the company of his fellow soldiers for fear of developing an erection in their presence, instead opting to bathe alone in the bathroom, which also afforded him the privacy to masturbate without discovery. That has to be rough. I mean, now I'm not defending this guy in one bit. I'm really not. But but just to go through those feelings alone, to be confused and not know how to handle something that's natural. You're naturally attracted to men, and you are avoiding showering with them just so you won't get an get an erection while you're in the pre while you're in their presence. That has to be rough. 
I mean, I, I hate to say it, but that has to be hard <laughs> to avoid. Bad joke. I know. I know. But I mean, just being attracted to men and and getting erect over something that you're attracted to isn't bad. But however, this is the 1960s, where if you remember 1960s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and even early 2000s, homosexuals, and even now, even, even in 2022, homosexuals or the LGBT community were being getting the shit beat out of them. They were just being completely belittled, ridiculed, embarrassed, and assaulted. You couldn't be a homosexual in in any time frame until just recently, which is, I mean, it's still not in the clear, but it's a lot more accessible than it had been, especially back in the 60s. It's insane. It's like, let's deny our natural feelings on the basis of religion and because I don't want to feel like I'm weaker than somebody else. It's stupid. In, th- in this deployment, Nielsen began to increase his intake of alcohol. He described himself and his colleagues as a hardworking, boozy lot. His colleagues recalled he often drank to, ex- to excess in order to ease his shyness. On one occasion, Nielsen and a German youth drank themselves into a stupor. When Nielsen, when Nielsen awoke, he found himself on the floor of the German youth's flat. No sexual activity had occurred, but this incident fueled Nielsen's sexual fantasies, which initially involved his sexual partner, invariably a young slender male being completely passive. These fantasies gradually evolved into his partner being unconscious or dead. On several occasions, Nielsen also made tentative efforts to have his own prone body sexually interfered with by one of his colleagues. In these instances, whenever he and his colleagues drank to excess, Nielsen would pretend he was inebriated in the hope one of his colleagues would make sexual use of his supposedly unconscious body. Now, that's a whole lot of world of sexual desires and sexual fantasies and sexual confusion that's running through this guy's head. On one end, he knows that, look, I know I like guys, but I can't admit it. On another end, he's fantasizing about being his partner being incapac- incapacitated and him being able to have free use of, the, of his partner's body. And then on the, on the other hand, he's also having these, one, these wild, fan, wild fantasies about him being used and abused while his body wasn't is laying there unconscious, or while he's unconscious, laying there vulnerable. Could you imagine what that is? Is just going through your head, just pounding back and forth inside your head, not knowing what to feel, how to feel, and what to do because you feel that way. Crazy to me, crazy. Unlike his previous postings, Nielsen had his own room while stationed in Aden. This afforded him the privacy to masturbate without discovery. He has developed fantasies of sex with an unresistant or deceased partner unfulfilled. Nielsen's compensated partner unfulfilled. Nielsen compensated by imagining sexual encounters with an unconscious body as he masturbated while looking at his own prone nude body in a mirror. On one occasion, Nielsen discovered that by using a freestanding mirror, he could create an effect whereby if positioning the mirror so his head was out of view, he could visualize himself engaged in a sexual act with another man. So this guy's already going to extreme, not, I'm, I'm not, uh, extreme is the wrong word. He's going to great lengths to fulfill his fantasies about being with a guy or, yeah, a guy who is incapacitated, unconscious, and completely submissive. He's going to the extent that he's using his own body as a prop or as, as masturbating fuel by, by using a stand-up mirror and positioning himself in order to make it seem as if he's unconscious, prone, and completely vulnerable. There's nothing wrong with that. However, it's completely unchecked, knowing that part of his fantasy is that the guy might be dead, possibly be dead, or he wants him to be dead as he's taking advantage and full and full free use of this of, of his partner's lifeless, 
fully submissive, submissive body. To Nielsen, this ruse created the ideal circumstances in which he could visually split his personality. In these master, masturbatory fantasies, Nielsen alternately envisaged inv, inv, what? envisioned himself as being both the domineering and passive partner. These fantasies gradually evolved to incorporate his own near-death experience with, the, with an Arab taxi driver. The dead bodies he had seen in Aden and imaginary within an imagery within a 19th century oil painting entitled The Raft of the Medusa, which depicts an old man holding the limp nude body of a dead youth as he sits aside the dismembered body of another young male. So, on a quick thing, I actually left that out. I forgot to put, I forgot to add that into my notes. But the fantasy evolved into when he when he stated that he was incorporating his own near death experience with an Arab taxi driver. What happened is that during one of his postings, he was actually beat and 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 stuffed inside of a compartment inside of this this Arab taxi driver's cab. The 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 taxi driver pretty much beat the hell out of him, and the only way that he that he was able to escape was that the Dennis was able to beat the shit out of the, the taxi driver escape and will shove his body in the same compartment that, that the taxi driver shoved Dennis's body in. And he was able to escape freely and get away from what potentially would have been the end of his life. So by that he's, he's fantasizing that and putting that into the fantasies of, of what he wanted, what he wants to do with, with his partners. If he had the chance. In Nielsen's most vividly recalled fantasy, a slender, attractive, young, blonde soldier who had been recently killed in a battle is dominated by a faceless, dirty, gray-haired old man who washed his body before engaging in intercourse with the, with the spread-eagled corpse. In Nielsen's most vividly recalled fantasy, a slender, attractive, young, blonde soldier who had been recently killed in battle is dominated by a faceless, dirty, gray-haired old man. Jesus, Christmas, trees in June. So this guy, Dennis, Dennis Neely, is already having these wild fantasies of what he wants to do. So shit's going all bad. So we already know that this, well, nobody knows because I didn't really give, give what he did. But we're going to get into why Dennis Neely is a bad person. In my opinion, probably one of the top worst people that I have covered on my podcast. We're going to get into his murders. Yeah, he is a, he is a serial killer. Between 1978 and 1983, Nielsen is known to have killed a minimum of 12 men and boys and to have attempted to kill seven others. He initially confessed in 1983 to having killed about 16 victims. The majority of Nielsen's victims were homeless or gay men. Otherwise, others were heterosexual people he typically met in bars, on public transport, or on one occasion outside his own home. All of Nielsen's murders were committed inside the two North London addresses where he resided in the years he is known to have killed. His victims were lured, were lured to these addresses through guile, through guile, typically the offer of alcohol and or shelter. Inside Nielsen's home, the victims were usually given food and alcohol, then strangled, typically with a ligature, either to death or until they had become unconscious. If the victim had been strangled into unconsciousness, Nielsen then drowned him in his bathtub, his sink, or a bucket of water before observing a ritual in which he bathed, clothed, and retained the bodies inside his residence for several weeks or occasionally months before he dismembered them. Yeah, you heard me right. He would keep dead bodies inside of his residences for several weeks or occasionally months before he dismembered them. Oh, it gets worse. 
Now, I didn't put all 12 of his killings and exactly what it did. I, I touched a few, and then at the end, I, I kind of summed it up. That way, this isn't a three-hour episode. Each victim killed between 1978 and 1981 at his house, Cricklewood residence, was disposed of via burning upon a bonfire. Prior to, the, to their dissection, Nielsen removed their internal, their internal organs, which he disposed of either beside a, fa- a fence behind his flat or close to Gladstone Park. The victims killed in 1982 and 1983 at his Moswell Hill residence were retained at his flat with their flesh and smaller bones flashed, flushed down the lavatory. For those of you who don't know what a lavatory is, it's just their toilet. It's just a restroom. I didn't know what that was for the longest time. So with the killings between 1978 and 1981, he burned them up in a bonfire or when he was at his other house at Gladstone Park, he would retain the bodies in his flat with their flesh and smaller bones flushed down the toilet. That's insane. Crazy. That doesn't make any sense. Nielsen admitted to, hold on. Oh, here we go. Nielsen admitted to engaging in masturbation as he viewed the nude bodies of several of his victims and to have engaged in sexual acts with six of his victims' bodies, but was adamant that he had never penetrated any of his victims. So I wonder what other sexual activities that he engaged or sexual acts that he engaged in if he's, if he's adamant that he never penetrated any of his victims. That, I mean, it, I mean, there's a billion things that could, I mean, that, that could probably run through my mind, but I'm not going to say I'm on, on, on the pod. It just doesn't make any sense to me that, he, that he's claims that he's adamant that he never penetrated any of his victims. Nielsen killed his first victim, 14-year-old Stephen Holmes, on December 30th, 1978. Holmes encountered Nielsen in the Creeklewood Arms Pub where Holmes had unsuccessfully attempted to purchase alcohol. According to Nielsen, he had been drinking heavily alone on the day he met Holmes before deciding in the, in the evening that he must, at all costs, leave his flat and seek company. So this reminds me a lot of Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer did a lot of these similar things. So I wonder if Jeffrey Dahmer read about this guy or it was just a coincidence that he was able to to mimic pretty much exactly what Dennis Nielsen did. I mean, Dennis Nielsen was a killer way long before Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer was in the 90s, and this guy was in the 60s, and as well, 70s, really. Nielsen invited Holmes to his house with the promise of the two drinking alcohol and listening to music, believing him to be approximately 17 years old. And Nielsen's home, both he and Holmes drank heavily before they fell asleep. The following morning, Nielsen awoke to find the sleeping Holmes behind, beside him on his bed. In his subsequent written confessions, Nielsen stated he, he was afraid to wake him in case he left me. After caressing the sleeping youth, Nielsen decided Holmes was to stay with me, for, stay with me over the new year whether he wanted to or not. Reaching for a necktie, Nielsen straddled Holmes as he strangled him into unconsciousness before drowning the teenager in a bucket filled with water. Nielsen then washed the body in his bathtub before placing Holmes on his bed and caressing his body. So this is all kinds of bad. I mean, we, we don't have to guess and, and figure it out and try to think of why this is bad. Number one, he just killed a, a minor. He just killed a 17-year-old kid. And to say that he is going to stay with him over the new year, whether he wanted to or not, that's already all kinds of bad. And then 
washing his body in a bathtub and then placing him on his bed and caressing his body once the body's dead. Damn. Nielsen twice masturbated over the body before awaiting the passing of rigor mortis to enable him to stow the corpse beneath the floor, beneath the fucking floorboards. God damn. Nielsen twice, twice masturbated over the body before awaiting the passing of rigor mortis to enable him to stow the corpse beneath the floorboards. Yeah, that's what it says. God damn. Holmes bound corpse remained beneath the floorboards for almost eight months before Nielsen built a bonfire in the garden behind his flat and burned the body on August 11th, 1979. So you're just going to have a dead, rotting, stinky ass body in the bottom of your floorboards for eight goddamn months before deciding to get rid of it. And, you know, I, I always read about this stuff. And what, what the first thing that pops in my head is how can you deal with the smell of the, the odor and the, the just the stench of rotting, decaying flesh filling up your nostril holes. You know, I worked I worked in a, an emergency room for for a couple of years. It, it, was, it was one of my coolest jobs I've ever done. And there's times where I would go into certain rooms. Usually it'd be the dead body room or the body room, but I would go in there and the body would be in there just for a couple hours waiting for the morgue or for, for transport forever to come pick up the body. And I remember walking in there and, and just, just actively smelling a dead body, which is not good. And if the body was, was riddled with like cancer or diabetes or something like that, the body had this weird stench to it, making it even worse. So what, what blows my mind is that if that was just a couple hours, what makes you think eight months, eight months of a body rotting underneath your floorboards would be any better? I just don't get it. I, it's, I have a hard time understanding why and how Someone can just stay there. I mean, you have to be really messed up in the head in order for you just to be okay with a with the body just rotting in your floorboards. Reflecting on his killing spree in 1983, Nielsen stated that having killed Holmes, stating, I caused dreams which caused death. This is my crime, end quote. Adding that he had started down the avenue of death and possession of a new kind of flatmate. On December 11th, 1979, Nielsen attempted to murder a student from Hong Kong named Andrew Ho, whom he had met at St. Martin's Lane Pub and lured, and lured to his flat on the promise of sex. Nielsen attempted to strangle Ho, who managed to flee from his flat and reported the incident to police. Nielsen was questioned in relation to the incident, but Ho decided not to press charges. Now, Ho could have been the savior, and he could have actually had this guy prosecuted and arrested and possibly saved a bunch of lives. But of course, not knowing who the person is, you just think, actually, I don't know what he was thinking. I, I can't even speculate or guess. Two months after the attempted murder of Ho on, th on December 3rd, 1979, Nielsen encountered a 23-year-old Canadian student named Kenneth Ockenden. Ockenden. I think it's Ockenden who had been on a tour of England visiting relatives. Nielsen encountered Ockenden as they both drank in a West End pub. Upon learning the young man was a tourist, Nielsen offered to show Ockenden several London landmarks and an offer which Ockenden accepted. Nielsen then invited the student to his house on the promise of a meal and further drinks. The pair stopped at an off-license in route to... An, off an off-license? I don't know what that is en route to Nielsen's residence and purchased whiskey, rum, and beer, with Ockenden insisting on sharing the bill. 
Nielsen was adamant he could not recall the precise moment he strangled Ockenden, but recalled that he strangled the young man with the cord of his of Nielsen's headphones as Ockenden listened to music. First of all, I want to know what kind of fucking headphones he had in order for them to be able to strangle him with fucking cord. He also recalled dragging Ockenden across his floor with the wire strapped or with the wire wrapped around his neck as he strangled him. Before pouring himself half a glass of rum and continuing to listen to music on the headphones with which he had strangled Ockenden. Okay, number one, I still want to know what kind of headphones he used and what kind of wire that was. And I go, no, goddamn well, I have a I have a really nice pair of studio headphones. And if I use those headphones to strangle someone, my shit's busting. I want to know what kind of what kind he was using. The following day, Nielsen purchased a Polaroid camera and photographed Ockenden's body in various suggestive positions. He then laid Ockenden's corpse spread-eagled above him on his bed as he watched television for several hours before wrapping the body in plastic bags and showing the cor- and, show- and stowing the corpse beneath the floorboards. On approximately four occasions over the following fortnight, which fortnight just means two weeks, Nielsen disinterred Ockenden's body from beneath his floorboards and seated the body upon his, upon his armchair alongside him as he himself watched television and drank alcohol. So one thing that I didn't understand here is where Nielsen Nielsen stated that he he laid Ockenden's corpse spread eagled above him on his bed as he watched television for several hours. Was it a bunk bed? Was it? So what what I what I'm guessing is that he had a bunk bed, put him on the bunk bed spread eagled, and then watched TV as 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 the body was laying right on top of him. That's what I that's what I envisioned. I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but that's just, I had a hard time understanding what and how he meant and how he did it in order to get the body spread eagled above him. It just, I don't know. It just it had my heart, my mind wandering. And then think about this on approximately four occasions over the following fortnight, Nielsen disinterred Ockenden's body from beneath his floorboards and seated the body upon his armchair alongside him as he himself watched television, and drank alcohol. So once, I mean, think about it, two weeks, within two week time, when there's a body de- decomposing and rotting under your floorboards, this guy, you, you, you're, he pulls the, pulls the body back out and then props him up on the chair and they both watch TV as homeboys drinking alcohol. There's a lot of things wrong with this guy. I mean, there's severe mental health issues. And again, it should have been nipped in the bud. But when mental health is such a taboo subject, especially back in the 60s and 70s, it's hard to address something that people don't want to admit. On January 26, 1983, Nielsen killed his final victim, 20-year-old Stephen Sinclair. Sinclair was last seen by acquaintances in the company of Nielsen walking in the direction of a tube station. In Nielsen's flat, Sinclair fell asleep in a drug and alcohol-induced stupor in an armchair as Nielsen sat listening to the rock opera Tommy. Nielsen approached Sinclair, knelt before him, and said to himself, Oh, Stephen, here I go again, before strangling Sinclair with a ligature constructed with a necktie and a rope. Noting crepe bandages upon each of Sinclair's wrists, Nielsen removed these to discover several deep slash marks from where Sinclair had recently tried to kill himself. So not only did this kid try to save himself from killing himself, now he's going to get murdered by by Nielsen and lose his life even after this kid was trying to save his own life. God damn. 
Following his usual ritual of bathing the body, Nielsen laid Sinclair's body upon his bed, applied talcum powder to the body, then arranged three mirrors around the bed before himself lying naked alongside the dead youth. Several hours later, he turned Stephen's head towards him before kissing the youth's body on the forehead and saying, Good night, Stephen. Nielsen then fell asleep alongside the body. Did you, did you, did you catch that? I mean, I read it and it didn't re- it didn't register in my head until after I finished it. Following, following his usual ritual of bathing the body, Nielsen laid Sinclair's body upon his bed, applied talcum powder to the body, then arranged three mirrors around the bed before himself, before he himself lay naked alongside the dead youth. Several hours of them two just laying on the bed next to a dead body. Think about it. Nielsen, Dennis Nielsen is just laying next to this dead body. He turned to Stevens, he turned Stevens' head towards him because, you know, the kid's dead. So he can't move himself. Then he kisses the bod, the youth body. He kisses the kid on the forehead, telling him good night, and then falls asleep next to the body. The lifeless body, the corpse that shit that 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 the kid that he just unalived, he is now laying there with him after kissing him on the for the forehead and telling him good night. You know, I'm not I'm not usually for one to for insanity cases or insanity pleas. I feel that if you do the crime, you need to do the time, but there is some serious, serious, sick, wrong things going on with this guy. Let's continue. As had been the case with both Howlett and Allen, Sinclair's body was subsequently di- dissected with various dismembered parts wrapped in plastic bags and stored in either a wardrobe, a tea chest, or within a drawer located beneath the bathtub. The bags used to seal Sinclair's, Sinclair's remains were sealed with the same crepe bandages Nielsen had found upon Sinclair's wrist. God damn. So for those of you who are who didn't catch the beginning, when it said, as had been the case with both Hallett and Allen, those were two more victims that of Dennis Nielsen. Again, I didn't put all 12 victims in this pod because it would have been a super long episode and I just didn't want to make a two-hour long episode. But could you imagine the... The bags used to seal Sinclair's remains were sealed with the same crepe bandages Nielsen had found upon Sinclair's wrist. God damn, that's that's fucking crazy. As had been the case with oh, I already read that. Nielsen attempted to dispose of the flesh, internal organs, and smaller bones of all three victims killed at Cranley Gardens by flushing their dissected remains down his toilet. In a practice which he had conducted upon several victims killed at Melrose Avenue, he also boiled the heads and hands and feet to remove the flesh off the sections of the victims' bodies. Oh, my gosh. This dude's just boiling bodies. See, the more I read about this, the more I'm believing that Jeffrey Dahmer might have been a copycat. And I don't remember if he mentioned Dennis Nielsen at all in any of his, of his confessions. It's just, there's, there's a lot of similarities, especially the boiling of the heads to get the flesh off and to remove. It just, it just seems, it just with so much coincidences. Oh my gosh, that's, that's... On February 4th, 1983, Nielsen wrote a letter of complaint to estate agents complaining that the drains of, at Cranley Gardens were blocked and the situation for both himself and the other tenants at the property was intolerable. The following day, he refused to allow an acquaintance to enter his property. The reason being, he he had begun to dismember Sinclair's body on the floor of his kitchen. 
So this is where, what's his name? This is where Dennis Nielsen fucked up at. This is where he dropped the ball, where he un, ultimately done himself in. On February 4th, 1983, Nielsen wrote a letter of complaint to estate agents complaining that the drains at Cranley Gardens were blocked and the situation for both himself and the other tenants at the property was intolerable. So we all know that if you start writing complaints to your, to your landlord, they're going to go and fix it that way because they don't want any complaints. They want to keep you in, occupied in the residence and they want to continue taking your money. So, of course, they're going to try and go fix that. So let's find out why he was arrested and how he was arrested. It doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, it makes sense now that I'm reading it, but it doesn't make any sense why he made that complaint. It's nuts. Nielsen's murders were first discovered by a dino rod employee, Michael Catran. Catran, who responded to the plumbing complaints, made both Nielsen and other tenants of of Cranley Gardens on February 8th, 1983. Opening a drain cover at the side of the house, Cataran discovered the drain was packed with a flesh-like substance and numerous small bones of unknown origins. So he, Dennis Nielsen, fucked himself over by reporting this. Again, like I mentioned just a few seconds ago, He's going to, the, 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 the property managers are going to get, get it taken care of one way or the other. And of course, they're going to have to open up the drains in order to unclog the drains. So you just messed yourself up, man. Cataran reported his suspicions to a supervisor, Gary Wheeler. As Cataran had arrived at the property at dusk, he and Wheeler agreed to postpone further investigation into the blockage until the following morning. Prior to leaving the property, Nielsen and fellow tenant Jim Allock convinced convened with Cataran to discuss the source of the substance. Upon hearing Cataran exclaim how similar the substance was in appearance to human flesh, Nielsen replied, it looks to me like someone has been flushing down their Kentucky Fried Chicken. At 7.30 a.m. the following day, Cataran and Willow returned to Cranley Gardens, by which time the drain had been cleared. This aroused the suspicion of both men. Cataran discovered some scraps of flesh and four bones and a pipe leading from the drain, which linked the top of the flat to the house. To both Cataran and Wheeler, the bones looked as if they originated from a human hand. Both men immediately called the police, who, upon closer inspection, discovered further small bones and scraps of what looked to the, to the naked eye like either human or animal flesh in the same pipe. These remains were taken to the mortuary at Hornsey, where pathologist David Bowen advised police that the remains were human and that one particular piece of flesh he concluded had been from a human neck, bore a, lit- a ligature mark. That always blows my mind where, where uh, coroners and, and the doctors for post, post-humus, hum, I think it's called, or post-humus, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to say it, but the doctors who, who examine dead bodies are able to discover so much just off of little pieces of flesh in this case. This guy at the mortuary was able to tell that one piece of the flesh had a strangulation mark on it. Boy, I tell you. Upon learning, upon learning from fellow tenants that the top floor flat from where the human remains had been flushed belonged to Nielsen, Detective Chief Inspector Peter J. and two colleagues opted to wait outside the house until Nielsen returned home from work. When Nielsen returned home, DCIJ introduced himself as his colleagues, explaining they had come to inquire about the blockage in the drains from his flat. 
Nielsen asked why the police were interested in his drains and also whether or not the two officers present with Jay were health inspectors. In response, Jay informed Nielsen that the other two were also police officers and requested access to his flat to discuss the matter further. The three officers followed Nielsen to his flat where they immediately noted the odor of rotting flesh. Nielsen questioned further as to why the police were interested in his drains to which he was informed the blockage had been caused by human remains. Can you imagine just walking in there into someone's apartment and just getting hit right in the nose holes was just rotting flesh. Just, just, the, just the odor of, of, of dead body. I'm telling you, a dead body stinks and it's a very distinct smell. You, you just can't get rid of. As soon as you walk in, you already know that it's a dead body if you've ever been around a dead body. Nielsen feigned shock and bewilderment, stating, good grief, how awful. In response, Jay replied, don't mess about. Where's the rest of the body? Nielsen responded calmly, admitting that the remainder of the body could be found in two plastic bags in a nearby wardrobe from which DCIJ and his colleagues noted the overpowering smell of decomposition emanated. The officers did not open the cupboard, but asked Nielsen whether there were any other body parts to be found, to which Nielsen replied, it's a long story. It goes back a long time. I'll tell you everything. I want to get it out of my, I want to get it off my chest. Not here at the police station. He was then arrested and cautioned on suspicion of murder before being taken to Hornsey police station. While en route to the police station, Nielsen was asked whether the remains in its flat belonged to one person or two. Staring out the window of the police car, he replied, 15 or 16, since 1978. What did you do as a cop when someone says that to you? Did the bodies, did the, did the remains in his flat belong to one person or two? And then the person you have inside of your cop car says, well, about 15 or 16, since around 1978. I wonder what the cops thought were, I mean, what, what, what their thought process was at that time. Damn, that's crazy. That evening, Detective Superintendent Chambers accompanied DCIJ and Bowen to Cranley Gardens where the plastic bags were removed from the wardrobe and taken to Hornsey Mortuary. One bag was found to contain two dissected torsos, one of which had been vertically dissected and a shopping bag containing various internal organs. The second bag contained a human skull almost completely devoid of flesh, a severed head and a torso with arms attached but hands missing. Both heads were found to have been subjected to moist heat. Take a minute. Close your eyes. If you're driving, don't close your eyes. Just wait till you get home and then close your eyes to listen to the rest of this podcast. One bag was found to contain two dissected torsos, one of which had been vertically dissected and a shopping bag containing various internal organs. The second bag contained a human skull almost completely devoid of flesh. There was also a severed head and a torso with arms attached, but the hands were missing. Now close your eyes and think about it. There's just the torso. There's no legs. There's no head. But there are arms, but the hands are missing. Close your eyes and imagine that. Just, oh my gosh. How insane is that? That's beyond insane. This is, this is probably one of the craziest people I have ever, I have ever talked about on this podcast. Just, just a torso with arms and no hands. Yes, I'm hung up on that. 
So let's get into his confession. Yeah, oh, he confessed about everything. He, he confessed about everything that, that was done. In an interview conducted on February 10th, Nielsen confessed there were further human remains stowed in a tea chest in his living room with other remains inside an upturned, up, inside an upturned drawer in his bathroom. The dismembered body parts were the bodies of three men, all of whom, all of whom he had killed by strangulation, usually with a necktie. One victim he could not name, another he knew only as John the Guardsman, and the third he identified as Stephen Sinclair. He also stated that beginning in, in December 1978, he had killed 12 or 13 men at his former address, 195 Melrose, at Melrose Avenue. Nielsen also admitted to having unsuccessfully attempted to kill approximately seven other people who had either escaped or, on one occasion, had been at the brink of death but had been revived and allowed to leave his residence. Damn, just the luck. The luck of, be, of being revived and then saying you can go home. Jeez. A further search for additional remains at Cranley Gardens on February 10th revealed the lower section of a torso and two legs stowed in a bag in the bathroom. Oh my God. Let me read that because that's one. Hold on. A further search for additional remains at Cranley Gardens on February 10th revealed the lower section of a torso and two legs stowed in a bag in the bathroom and a skull, a section of a torso, and various bones in the tea chest. The same day, Nielsen accompanied the accompanied police to Melrose Avenue, where he indicated the three locations in the rear garden where he had burned the remains of his victim. Under English law, police had 48 hours in which to charge Nielsen or release him. Assembling the remains of his victims of the, assembling the remains of the victims killed at Cranley Gardens on the floor of Hornsey Mortuary, Professor Bowen was able to confirm the fingerprints on one body match those on police files of Sinclair. Just the human puzzle put it back together. Just, just let's, let's spread all the body parts and everything that we have on the floor, and we're just going to put them together and see what we get. At 5.40 p.m. on February 11th, Nielsen was charged with Sinclair's murder and a statement revealing this was released to the press. Formal questioning of Nielsen began the same evening with Nielsen agreeing to be represented by a solicitor, a facility he had earlier declined. Police interviewed Nielsen on 16 separate occasions over the following days in, inter over the following days in interviews which totaled over 30 hours. Nielsen was adamant that he was uncertain as to why he had killed, simply saying, quote, I'm hoping you will tell me that, end quote. When asked his motive for the murders, he was adamant that the decision to kill was not made until the moments before the act of murder. Most victims died by strangulation. On several occasions, he had drowned the victims once they had been strangled into consciousness. Once the victim had been killed, he typically bathed the victim's body, shaved any hair from their torso to confirm it, to conform it to his physical ideal, then applied makeup to any obvious blemishes upon the skin. The body was usually dressed in socks and underpants before Nielsen draped the victims, the victims around him as he talked to the corpse. Wait, what the hell? Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm trying to read this and understand it at the same time. And every time I read it, I get hung up and my eyes start blinking and, I, and I'm just in disbelief of what I just read. And then I have to go back and read it. The body was usually dressed in socks and underpants before Nielsen draped the victims around him as he talked to the corpse. 
So he would dress these guys in just socks and some underwear and then put the body around him as he talked to the corpse. Just, just let's throw him over my shoulder like, like a boa or like a, a, a fucking Afghan shirt and just, just a throw blanket over my shoulders. That's, that's how I'm going to use the body. With most victims, Nielsen masturbated as he stood alongside or knelt above the body. And Nielsen confessed to having occasionally engaged in intercrural sex with his victims' bodies, but repeatedly stressed to investigators he had never actually penetrated his victims, explaining that his victims were, quote, too perfect and beautiful for the pathetic ritual of commonplace sex, end quote. I don't believe that. I don't believe that he wasn't pen- that he didn't do any penetration. There's no way. There's no. There's absolutely no way. With as sick as this individual is, and as and as as obsessed as he was with what he was doing, there's no way that he didn't penetrate these 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 uh, his victims. All the victims' personal possessions were destroyed following the ritual of bathing their bodies in an effort to obliterate their identity prior to their murder, and they're now and they're now becoming what Nielsen described as a prop in his fantasies. In several instances, he talked to the victim's body as it remained seated in a chair or prone on his bed, and he recalled being emotional as he marveled at the beauty of their bodies. With reference to one victim, Kenneth Ochtenden, Nielsen noted that Ochtenden's body and skin were very beautiful, adding the sight almost brought me to tears. Another unidentified victim had been so emaciated that he had simply been discarded under the floorboards. God. The bodies of these victims killed at his previous address were kept for as long as decompensation would allow. Upon noting any major signs of decompensation in a body, Nielsen stowed it beneath his floorboards. If a body did not display any signs of decompensation, he occasionally alternately stowed it beneath the floorboards and retrieved it before again masturbating as he stood over or lay alongside the body. Makeup was again applied to enhance the appearance and to obscure any blemishes. Godly. So depending on, on if you if the body was showing decompensation, he would keep it and use it again or just leave it under there and let it rot. When questioned as to why the heads found at Cranley Gardens had been subjected to moist heat, Nielsen stated that he had frequently boiled the heads of his victims in a large cooking pot on his stove so that the internal contents evaporated, thus removing the need to dispose of the brain and flesh. God damn it. I'm telling you, this is probably one of the worst ones I've done. This should have been, this should have been a Patreon episode. So th- l- just listen to what he just said. When questioned as why the heads found at Cranley Gardens had been subjected to moist heat, Nielsen stated that he had frequently boiled the heads of his victims in a large cooking pot, in a large cooking pot on his stove that the in- so that the internal organs, or excuse me, so that the internal contents evaporated, thus removing the need to dispose of the brain and flesh. So, so let me put it in, in, in terms that I can understand. Pretty much what he did was that he would just drop a head in some water in a, boiling, in, a, in a pot of water and boil it until the brains, the eyeballs, and the flesh just evaporated from just being overly boiled. So the only thing that would be left would probably be the hair and, and the skull and, and the bones. Oh, my gosh. The torsos and limbs of the three victims killed at this address were dissected within about one week of their murder before being wrapped in plastic bags and stowed in the three locations he had indicated to police. 
the internal organs and smaller bones he flushed down the toilet. Oh, excuse me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm reading ahead of myself. So let me see here. About one week before the murder wrapped in plastic bags and stowed in, in the three locations he had indicated to police, the internal organs and smaller bones he flushed down the toilet. This practice, which had led to his arrest, to his arrest had been the only method he could consider disposed of the internal organs and soft tissue, as unlike at Melrose Avenue, he had no exclusive use of the garden or of the property. So at his new residence, he wasn't, he didn't have any, uh, when, when the people refer to garden, that just means their backyard in the UK. So he didn't have access to, to the backyard on his own, like he did at his previous residence. So he was unable to burn him in a bonfire. So he had to get rid of him in other ways. So he would flush down the flesh and everything down the toilet, causing, again, that's what caused the backup and ultimately causing his, his demise. At Melrose Avenue, Nielsen typically retained the victim's bodies for a much longer period before disposing of the remains. He kept three or four bodies stowed beneath the floorboards before he dissected the remains, which he would wrap inside plastic bags and either return under the floorboards or, in two instances, place inside suitcases which had been left at the property by a previous tenant. God damn it. The remains stowed inside suitcases, those of Octenden and Duffy, were placed inside a shed in the rear garden and were disposed of upon the second bonfire Nielsen had constructed at Melrose Avenue. Other dissected remains, minus the, minus the internal organs, were returned beneath the floorboards or placed upon a bonfire he had constructed in the garden. Nielsen confirmed that on four occasions he had removed the accumulated bodies from beneath his floorboards and dissected the remains, and on three of, the, of these occasions, he had then disposed of the accumulated remains upon an assembled bonfire. On more than one occasion, he had removed the internal organs from the victim's bodies and placed them in bags, which he then typically dumped behind a fence to be eaten by wildlife. And this guy wasn't dumb. That's one thing I can say. This guy was not dumb. But at the same time, he was. But for the most part, he really wasn't. All the, all the bodies of the victims killed at Melrose Avenue were dismembered after several weeks or months of internment beneath the floorboards. Nielsen recalled that the, purifi the putrefaction of these victims' bodies of these victims' bodies made his task exceedingly vile. He recalled having to fortify his nerves with whiskey and having to grab handfuls of salt with which he brushed aside maggots from the remains. Ew. Fucking ew. Nielsen recalled that the, pu the putrefaction of these victims' bodies made his task exceedingly vile. He recalled having to fortify his nerves with whiskey and having to grab handfuls of salt with which to brush aside maggots from the remains. That's fucking gross. Ew. Often he vomited... Oh, my gosh. Often he vomited as he dissected the bodies before wrapping the dismembered limbs inside plastic bags and carrying the remains to the bonfires. Nonetheless, immediately prior to his dissecting the victim's body, Nielsen masturbated as he knelt or sat alongside the corpse. This, he stated, was a symbolic gesture of saying goodbye to his victims. How can you masturbate knowing that you just threw up? You're pushing away maggots from a dead fucking body, and you're 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 still masturbating from uh, to these to these corpses, to these decaying. He said the putrefaction of the bodies, meaning that they were so gross and disgusting and stunk so bad that he had to drink a bunch of whiskey just so he can perform the task. That's insane. When questioned as to whether he had any remorse for his crimes, Nelson replied, I wish I could stop, but I couldn't. I had no other thrill or happiness. 
He also emphasized that he took no pleasure from the act of killing, but worshipped the art and the act of death. Get the fuck out of here. So his trial and sentencing, obviously he was arrested, he confessed, and now we are going to trial and we're going to see how much time he's going to get. It's about time. On February 11th, 1983, Nielsen was officially charged with the murder of Stephen Sinclair. He was transferred to H&P Brixton to be held on remand until his trial. According to Nielsen, upon being transferred to Brixton Prison to await trial, his mood was one of resignation and relief, with his belief being that he would be viewed in accordance with the law as innocent until proven guilty. Absolutely not, fool. You confessed to everything. You confessed to killing people and you showed everybody where all the remains were. You're not, you can't be innocent until proven guilty. There's no way. Nielsen objected to wearing a prison uniform while on remand. In protest at having to wear a prison uniform and what he interpreted to be breaches of prison rules, Nielsen threatened to protest against his remand, his remand conditions by refusing to wear any clothes. As a result of this threat, he was not allowed to leave his cell. <laughs> you can't just have a naked prisoner walking around. That's like, that's like somebody walking naked, butt-ass naked through a cornfield backwards. <laughs> On August 1st, Nielsen threw the contents of his chamber pot out of his cell, hitting several prison officers. This incident resulted in Nielsen being found guilty on August 9th of assaulting prison officers and subsequently spending 56 days in solitary confinement. They should just beat the hell out of him. Nielsen was brought to trial on October 24th, 1983. I was two years old when, when this happened. When he was brought to trial in 1983, I was in October of 1983. I was born October 7th of 1981. Nielsen was brought to trial on October 24th, 1983, charged with six, count, six counts of murder and two of attempted murder. He was tried at the Old Bailey before Mr. Justice Croom Johnson and pleaded not guilty to all charges. You are nuts pleading not guilty. The primary dispute between the prosecuting and defense counsel was not whether Nielsen had killed the victims, but his state of mind before and during the killings. The prosecuting counsel, Alan Green QC, argued that Nielsen was sane in full control of his actions and had been killed with and had killed with premeditation. The defense counsel, Ivan Lawrence QC, argued that Nielsen suffered from diminished responsibility, rendering him incapable of forming the intention to commit murder and should, and should therefore be committed only a manslaughter. Get the fuck out of here. No. Following the closing arguments of both prosecution and defense, the jury retired to consider their verdict on three on November 3rd, 1983. The following day, the jury returned with a majority verdict of guilty upon six counts of murder and one attempted murder with a unanimous verdict of guilty in, re, in relation to the attempted murder of Nobbs. Croom Johnson sentenced Nielsen to life imprisonment with a recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years in imprisonment. Following his conviction, Nielsen was transferred to H&P Warmwood. Oh, hold on. Following his conviction, conviction, Nielsen was transferred to H&P Warmwood Scrubs to begin his sentence. As a Category A prisoner, he was assigned his own cell and could mix freely with other inmates. Nielsen did not lodge an appeal accepting that the Crown's case, that he had the capacity to control his actions, that he had killed with premeditations was essentially correct. He further elaborated on the day of his conviction that he took an enormous thrill from the social seduction, the getting the friend back, the decision to kill, the body, and its disposal. Nielsen also claimed drunkenness was the sole reason at least two of his attempted murders were unsuccessful. God damn. Can you imagine just telling people that? 
the reason why I failed on two of my of my several murder attempts was that I was drunk and so I couldn't finish it. And that's, I, I was drunk and that's why I didn't. I wasn't successful in murdering two additional people to the already what is it, twelve or thirteen bodies that he had. In December 1983, Nielsen was cut on the face and chest with a razor blade by an inmate named Albert Moffat, resulting in injuries requiring 89 stitches. Afterward, he was briefly transferred to H&P Parkhurst before being transferred to H&P Wakefield, where he remained until 1990. In 1991, Nielsen was transferred to a vulnerable prison unit at H&P Full Sutton upon concerns for his safety. He remained there until 1993 when he was transferred to H&P Whitmore again as a Category A prisoner and with increased segregation from other inmates. Goddamn. The minimum term of 25 years imprisonment to which Nielsen was sentenced in 1983 was replaced, was replaced by a whole life tariff by Home Secretary Michael Howard in December 1994. This ruling ensured Nielsen would never be released from prison, a punishment he accepted. I, You know, that's a good, I'm, I'm glad they did that. For once, the prison system gone right. I mean, I would have sentenced him to death. I understand not a, not a lot of countries believe in capital punishment, but at least they realized, look, we can't let this guy back. We, we, there's no way this guy can ever come back out. There's no way. So let's change this 25 years eligible for parole bullshit and just give him life in prison. That's that was the best thing. I don't think he would have been able to stay on the on the straight and narrow. I think he would have killed again if if he had been let out. In 2003, Nielsen was again transferred to H&P Full Sutton, where he remained incarcerated as a Category A prisoner. In the prison workshop, Nielsen translated books into Braille. He spent much of his free time reading and writing and was allowed to paint and compose music upon a keyboard. He also exchanged letters with numerous people who sought his correspondence. Nielsen remained at H&P Full Sutton until his death on May 12, 2018. Crazy. He, he just died four years ago. That's nuts. Graveyard Grumble's final wrap. Let's go ahead and wrap this, this, this up. Like I mentioned earlier in the, in the episode, I didn't put every single one of his murders because this would have been a three-hour episode because he went into full detail. If you're, curious on, if you're curious to know more about it, just Google his name, Dennis Nielsen. And all of the information, well, a lot of the information that I left out is there to read. It's a long read. So if, you're, if you are going to read it, just be prepared. It's It's... There's a lot of shit that he did. Crazy. And I only touched, I only scratched the surface of it and I was still shocked and just dumbfounded by the, by the shit that he did. Crazy. I think the, I think law enforcement got this one right. It took him, I mean, it took him a while. They, he didn't really give much clues, but again, he, 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 he was ultimately his own demise because he called because he clogged up his own, he clogged up his own drain with all the flesh and shit that he was putting in there. Boy, I tell you. But I'm glad he was. He, I'm glad he received life in prison. That's that's really good. I mean, there's not really much. He, this is probably one of the worst episodes that I've done so far on the podcast. It's it's crazy. I mean, there's not much. There's not much of a final rap that I can put really into that. I mean, he he killed a bunch of kids, innocent kids. He did some sick stuff. Had a weird ritual. It, it it's insane. Let me see here. Announcements. There's not really much announcements. Just listen to my radio show. I go live every Monday. The link will be in the show notes. My Patreon is still up. I've had a little problem with my Patreon as far as uploading and found out that it was my computer. That was the, that was the issue, not Patreon. So I have that fixed. I'll be re- uploading again here shortly. I appreciate everyone's 
support and patience. Thank you so much. Other than that, there's not much more to announce. I do have some big news coming up that's going to affect the podcast and some other stuff, but I can't reveal that information until I know for sure. And I will share that with you once I have the information and I, and I'm free and able to, to speak about it. Other than that, please share my podcast, share my radio show. When I do my radio show, my radio show has nothing or very little to do with what I do with with what I say in the podcast. It's more like a radio personality show that I run with some music, my opinions, jokes, and stuff like that. I don't really associate it with the podcast, but if you're interested, give that a check, give that less, give that a listen, and I mean it'll entertain you for a couple hours at the very least. Other than that, there's not many, there's not much I can I can give much more information or nothing else to announce. So I appreciate everyone. And as always, good morning, good day, good night, goodbye. This is the end, this is the end, this is the end. Graveyard Grumbler Podcast.